0: Let's get to First Corinthians, uh, end of chapter 12 and into 13 tonight. And um, <clears throat> as we do that, um, we're, uh, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to try to uh, help us put in perspective chapter 13, which is a very, at least the middle verses of it, very famous chapter in, in the Word of God. Um, but we haven't just started 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 12. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So for those of us who've been engaged in the study, we have an idea of what has been happening as we go. And Paul, and Paul says, as he gets down to the end of chapter 12, he says, um, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you is a part of it. So what does that mean you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We talked about this last week, but give me some thoughts about what does that mean. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Okay, corporate and individual. There's a church of Christ, but there's an individual you belong to the body of Christ. Okay? Other ideas? Okay. We each have a job to do in the body. Now, how did you come with a job to do? How did you get there? Right? Isn't that what it says? It says, uh, the next verse, and God has placed in the church. God has placed in the church. So, we are um, joined together, right? And this whole puzzle is designed by God, right? Right? So if that's true, that means you have, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to respond to God, what do you need to do about church? Oh, yeah. You're hard to be joined if you're not here, here right? And, I, and for so many religious things, church attendance has been elevated to some spiritual practice and you're a better Christian. That's all garbage. None of that's true. But... There is truth in the fact that if we are the body of Christ, you are being disobedient to God and you are are, are disconnecting yourself from something God has joined you to, God has joined you to. You are the body of Christ and each of you is part of it. Secondarily, what else does it mean? Not just be here. Participate. You are to serve in the body of Christ. God's plan is not for some really cool people to do really cool stuff at church and for all, the rest of the people just to sit and watch, right? That, that's different. That's what we call entertainment industry. That's that's a different thing. This is participatory, meaning, here's what, here's what gets me. If you weren't here, would it have any effect? Hmm. Right? The, the, the design is, absolutely, God gave you a role and a, and a part to play and some gil, skills and gifts and, and things you're supposed to do. God designed you to be joined to the body. Are you? And what are you doing as a part of the body? And if if your time came to go home to be with the Lord tomorrow, would there be a hole? Or would people just be sad? Would And I'm not saying formally, you know, you... For me, you go, well, that's easy for you to say, Mark, because if you were gone and we would notice it. Yeah, kind of. But see, there's other people who can teach, and you could go find another person that could teach, and this church could go on with a different teacher. The question for me is not, would they miss your teaching? The question for me is, am I fulfilling my role in the body of Christ? Is there connection? Am I serving? Am I, am I doing what Paul is describing here in such a way that it is irreplaceable? That it is fulfilling the design that God gave me when he joined me to the church. That's the question for us as church. If we want to be a New Testament church, if we want to be healthy and whole, we got to be joined and fulfilling our design, right? And so then Paul goes into, you know, first of all, apostles, and second of all, prophets, and then te- third, teachers, and then all these other gifts, and he gives this kind of order. And we talked about it last week, why, why Paul gives that order. Why did Paul, at least our guest, my guest maybe, why did Paul give that order, first, second, third? I mean, the Corinthians had this real problem with the gifts that they liked the best. What gift did they like the best? The gift of tongues. They thought the gift of tongues was fantastic. The gift of tongues was you were able to speak a different language, a foreign language, without having studied it. Just miraculously, the Spirit came on you, and you had this miraculous ability to speak a different language. Pretty cool. And they loved it. And some of them had it, and they practiced it, which was a great thing. But they valued it to the degree that said, because our gift is visible, we are more spiritual than you. Because God picked us for this gift, we're better, we're better than you. And so then for Paul to go, well then first is this and second is this, it kind of seems out of place because his whole argument has been, you're all part of the body and all the gifts need one another. His whole kind of press is, we are not better than or worse than, we are connected and interdependent and need each other. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for him to say first and second. So why did he say first and second and third? Does anybody remember what we talked about last week? Right, right, right. There's a there's a building order. And he's talking about building the church. He's talking about, you know, when when we laid down the foundation here of the church, what did we start with? Apostles, right? And then we, we looked at what that role was. And then on top of that, we saw prophets. And then... On top of that, we built on top of that teachers. And then basically what Paul said is all the rest of those gifts go on top of that and are built on top of that for a house. In other words, without those things, and and who decided this order? God did. So Paul's point is, you want to to glory in this. At the same time, they're dismissing one of the apostles. They're saying, Paul, we don't care about you. We don't care what you have to say about us. We're really important because we have the the gift of tongues. So we don't need you. And Paul's saying, no, you don't understand. That's not how God made it to work. God made it to work like this. We build on one another. There's there's something that happens first in the church and then second, and it's God's design. We as a church have a unique history, but that's a history that God wrote. It's not a history that we wrote. None of us were smart enough and still are not smart enough to write some story of our church and say, let's make this happen. We're just walking down a path that God is laying out in front of us and it's kind of exciting to see what God does next and what God does next because God is the one opening that pathway up. And so first and second and third, right? And then Paul ends the chapter by saying, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? And the, the rhetorical answer to all that is, no, not all or any, no one of these gifts or roles is, applies to everybody. And it's, it's the way he summarizes the idea that everybody needs somebody else. That, that no specific gift is universal, is the, the earmark of the best of the best or whatever. It's the way God distributes them according to what God decides. And then he closes the chapter. So pick up with me at, at verse um, 31. Because this, this is where we stopped last time. And he says, now de- eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. All right, so I want you to just think about that for a second. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. The greater gifts. Does that strike you as odd? Why? Huh. He just spent the whole chapter arguing to to them that they're trying to make some gifts better than others, and he spent the whole chapter saying, We're not the, they're all from the Spirit. The Spirit gives them all. They all come from the same source. You start at the, cha- the, the beginning of chapter 12. He says, we all come from the same source. It all comes from the Spirit. So differentiating them is pointless because the Spirit is the one who, who uses them, and it's the same Spirit that drives them inside of everybody. So, they're, so this concept of greater gifts, kind of a difficult concept to get your head around. So what do you think he might be saying there? Maybe, maybe he's saying um, that you know all these things need to be filled in the church. All these you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. the tougher ones, shoot for the tougher ones. The tougher ones, yeah. Well, if if it means greater in that sense, where it somehow is more desirable, we would go back in chapter twelve to the stuff where he said the the less presentable gifts <laughs> are the ones that mean more, right? Which could make sense in in the discussion with the Corinthians. They loved to go after the gifts that everybody noticed. And Paul said, the gifts that really are essential, that are vital, like your vital organs that you can't see, are the gifts that you can't see. And, and that would be like, ah, I don't want a gift you can't see. What's the point of that? Nobody knows that you're special. So it, there's some thought that goes that direction that says, Desire the gifts that are more vital to the church, that are more of the heart and the lungs and stuff like that. I don't think that's what it means, but that's a good, and then a lot of people believe that. I think, could he mean, like, he's telling them, he eagerly desire the greater gifts, which aren't mentioned here, like, that are going to, he's going to tell them, or okay. greater than these specifics that they're talking about? Yeah. There's something better than what you've been pursuing and living for and after, and I'm going to show it to you. That definitely is the second half of that. Definitely suggests that I will show you the most excellent way, for sure. Becca. Um, there I think there's some blindness for them, and Paul's going to make that appeal. So there are gifts that are coming from the Spirit, but they they need to be connected to the right place in you. And I think he's definitely going to get to that as we get into 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah. Who else? Tom? Yeah. Gifts that genuinely edify the body, maybe, as opposed to building yourself up. And when you get to 14 and he talks about, if I speak in tongues, I, you know, edify myself. So there's some of that because the chapter 13 is kind of like, a parenthetical. It's like this little, let me just set aside the topic for a second and share with you some things. Then I'm going to come back to it in chapter 14. So there is some of that to it. Bob. Uh, Okay. Yeah. We have an eternal home. We have a better place overall. We got something to live for more than this world. Yeah. Good idea. More responsibility. Like like uh like take take for instance, you're a pastor. Okay. So you know, I hate to say this but you do that for a living. I mean, you know, that's what right, you, do. right. you don't go to a job and then come pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I don't, I have a job. Right. You know, but I'm an elder or mm-hmm. whatever. So uh you it takes up more of your time or responsibility, it's a it's a bigger yeah look for the look for the roles that have the biggest impact on the kingdom of god or something along those lines. I think for the Corinthians that would have been pretty sticky because I think they would have loved to have been, you know, the people that people thought were something. So I, I get what you're saying, but I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Tom? Well, on the uh, amplified it adds if acquiring them is going to be your goal. It's almost like huh. You know, you know, earnestly desirous if that's going to be your role. Yeah. Now, earnestly, when he says earnestly, what's that word mean to you? When he says earnestly desire. Honestly. Sincerely, honestly, genuinely. Like, if that's really what you want, then make it true. There's some of that, right? Now, I, I will say this. Um, in, in, the, in the language, uh, the, the word, the verb there is exactly the same if it's the imperative, which is how it's translated here eagerly desire the greater gifts a command eagerly desire the greater gifts but it's also exactly the same wording if it's an indicative which is just a sentence now seeing that you eagerly desire the greater gifts i'm going to show you the best way there is and i think that in the in the flow is what makes the most sense what paul says is since you're after the best gifts Since that's what you've proclaimed yourself to be after, and and since you tell me you sincerely want the best gifts, the greatest gifts, I'm going to show you how to do that. But it's not about gifts at all. It's about this whole other thing that you've missed entirely, this concept of love. And that's the setup to chapter 13, is you think that performing great deeds, powerful, miraculous, spirit-filled deeds, is the end-all, be-all. And I'm going to show you something so much better, so much better that if you don't have it, it's like you have nothing. Let me read the first couple of verses. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you see that? He says to them, listen, you are eagerly and earnestly, you say genuinely pursuing what you think is the best possible way to live as a believer. And if that's true, you'll have ears to hear what I say, because I'm going to show you the most excellent way the way that is better than all the other ways that there are, okay? And so then we get into chapter 13. Now, in chapter 13, the famous part is uh, verses 4 and 5 uh, and 6 and 7. That's the famous part because that is uh, what people use all the time as the definition of love. Uh, I will tell you that I believe it is a devastating discussion about love. If you will honestly take a look at what Paul describes as love, it will cut you deep. Because what we define as love often is not what Paul has given us as the example of love. But Paul's big point in this whole chapter, all right? He's got a, uh, a whole lot of stuff to say, but he's got one big point. And I think if we're going to look at this chapter, we've got to get to the big point first and if we don't get to the big point the rest of it's going to be noise okay the big point that paul makes is the last verse so as you read the last verse of 1 corinthians 13 you get to what paul is trying to get to okay and so he gives all this stuff he's going to give us all this stuff but he's going to come to this big point and he's, the big point is now these three remain faith hope and love But the greatest of these is love. Big point. What's the big point Paul's trying to get to? That what? It's all about love? All right, so expand on that. Big point. Okay, so it is all about love, and love is the definer of whether something matters or doesn't matter. We could even say, as Paul sums up here, whether something remains or doesn't remain. Do you see that? Now these things remain. Faith, hope, love. This lasts. This endures. This is something that will transform what you do from something that doesn't remain into something that does remain. Huh. That's When you look at the arc of this chapter, what he's saying is love is core, love is the best, love is foundational, love is everything there is. And so the thing that matters is love, right? So the big point is love, but it's that love lasts. Love endures. Love holds on. Love keeps going he actually ends the definition of the love with love keeps going until the end and love never fails. Love endures. So you can see as he talks about what it is, he even gets to that point in there and then he contrasts it with some other things. So all the things he says in the chapter are to say that we've got these three things. We've got faith, we've got hope, and we've got love. And those things remain. Those things endure. Those things last. Faith, hope, and love. They go on. And in contrast, everything else fades away. Everything else crumbles and falls except faith, hope, and love. Interesting as we go through the chapter what these other things are. Because they're not the things that generally people acknowledge. It is how the Word of God is like a big sword slicing through our lives, right down through all of our facades and all of our fakeness and all of the way that we try to pull ourselves together so we look like we got it together and say, but what are you really about at your core? Where's this coming from? What's driving this? Is it the same thing that would drive someone who didn't even know Christ? Or is there some unique indicator... There's some unique motivation or some unique connection to the Spirit that drives you to be different in how you live to the very fabric of your soul. Is it or is it not? I mean, you, you go to work, you live in the world, you go to school, you talk to other people, the parents, other, you bump into people all day long at the store, where, all the time, on the phone, customer service, you bump into people all the time. What is the essential difference of you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to anybody you meet that doesn't know Christ. How would you define that? This is Paul's definition. Interestingly, it matches up with someone else's definition. Who? Huh, how about that? It's like there's like this thread through the word of God, through the New Testament, teaching us what it means to be a believer, challenging us not to stay comfortable, not to stay where we would like to be. And so these things last what does it mean that they last? What's that tell you about these things? They are eternal. They are spiritual. They are beyond a world that is dying and fading away, right? We were just talking to Kim before the, the service began. She lost another friend yesterday, he said. Monday. So, And it's just heartbreaking. And I said, you know, we all know that this world we're all leaving this world. I hope all of you know that, right? All of you know we're leaving this world. But but we're never ready for it. We're, I mean, we're, I'm ready, but I'm not like, if somebody dies, I'm not like, ah, oh, well, that, that's great, I'm glad for that. Like, it, it's heartbreaking. That's how it is. But we all know this world is coming to an end. That same thing in us that doesn't, that, that gr- grinds against and, and resists the what we know, that we're leaving this world, that our life is fading away, that this world is fading away, is the same thing that resists, that the things of this world aren't worth living for, that they don't matter, that they have no real substance to them, that they are, in essence, illusions. Uh, James describes our life as a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. That, there's, that very description is, is very telling, a vapor, No substance. You can put your hand through it. You can can wave it away. He talks about how quickly it goes, a vapor that appears for a moment. But a vapor that's not something you can grab and and put in your pocket or something or put in your bank account. You can't do anything with that vapor. It's just, it's nothing. Even though you can see it, it's just a, it's kind of a mirage. It's kind of just a non-substantive thing that's your life. And yet we don't believe that. None of us do. I mean, I would like to, and God is stretching me to look, but we don't genuinely believe that. How do I know that? Anybody here ever stressed out? What are you stressed out about? All that stuff, right? So if we genuinely accepted the truth, we wouldn't live like all that stuff is determinative or matters or lasts or has significance. It, we would give it the significance it's due, which is the significance in this life about being faithful, but it's only significance as we interact with it in the eternal stuff. So as you interact with your life and the things that cause you stress, are you interacting with hope or not? What is hope? Somebody tell me what hope is. Okay, so hope of eternal life is an example of something we could have hope about? Okay, an expectation. Okay, now, what's the difference then? Because I know a lot of people who hope something will happen. They have an expectation. I would call it a wish, you know, as opposed to a hope. So is there a difference between, like, I wish that were true? You know, you ever see somebody who's dating a, a crummy person? And they're like, but they're gonna change. And you're like, you're dreaming. What what is that? That's a wish. Um, we talked about this at young adults on Monday night. The best indicator of future behavior is past performance. You know, unless you unless you see some different history, history, you see the change in history, there's no reason for you to expect a different future. It's they're gonna keep acting as they've acted. That's duh. But people do it all the time. Well, they're going to change and they're going to be better and we got to give them a chance. And yeah, but you also have to accept reality. We don't live in a fairy tale world. We live in the real world where we can know some things. We can have some wisdom about if somebody's always lying to you, the next time they say something to you, if you're wise, you'll probably doubt the truthfulness of it. You know, if someone's gossiping to you about someone else, you know what you could probably know about them? They're talking to other people about you. That's right, but we don't like to live like that. We like to live in wish. We like to live in fantasy, like, ah, we'll just just pretend. Okay, so there's expectation of something coming, but what's the expectation based on when we define it as this idea of hope? Becca, you got an idea? Okay, give me your input. Okay. Okay. A positive outlook, not a negative outlook. Okay. A lot of people can define it. That's not the specific of this definition, but it's a way that people use that word, which is why we get confused when we hear it. You know, always be positive, always believe the best. Sometimes that's the worst possible thing to, to believe the best about something that is going to be devastating. Okay. I this cuz there's a promise that I believe true, right wrong Right. So hope in the word of God is a confident expectation. It's living as though something is true even though it has not shown up yet. Okay? Now, we a lot of people live in that kind of hope but not in the Bible or not in God or not in the truth of the word of God. They live in that kind of expectation in foolish hope. But the Bible calls us to live in hope in what, like Bob said, what's coming, what we have ahead of us, eternal life, right? We we know where this goes. We know how this ends. We know when I leave this earth where I'm going. We know that my, my sin has been paid for and that my, my life is in Christ and that I belong to Him and one day I will see Him face to face and, and, and all the cares and all the troubles of this life will be shed off of me and I will forever be with the Lord. I know that. Has that happened to me yet? No. But hope lets me live in it today. And so hope is taking your life, whatever you're looking at, whatever you're facing, and applying what you know about your future. Now, even even in this earth, uh, it's fine. It's all well and good that someday we'll be in heaven. But what's going to happen to my living situation? What's going to happen to my bills? What's going to happen to my health? I don't know what's going to happen in those. What would hope be in those scenarios? What could we believe in? What, what could we experience because we confidently expect God to do something he said he would do? Bob? In the same way, your hope is in the Lord. Your hope is basically faith Whatever your situation is, that God. Yeah. It's going to be good. There you go. Right? Because he says... He'll always make it good, right? He is a good God and He does good. So I can expectantly—I don't may not be able to define what that good is—but I can live by faith, which connects me to hope, right? I was what's the difference between faith and faith? Yeah. Faith is accepting as true what God says is true. Faith is taking you on your word that what you say is true is true, uh, which is not so much forward-looking as present-looking. Right? It is believing without evidence. Okay? Hope is a special kind of faith. They're interlocked. Hope talks more about the the fruitful experience, the the spirit-filled experience of faith. One feeds into the other. Okay? And so those things define the substance of our spiritual life. That is how we connect to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. The Bible tells us that it is by faith that we come to Him, it is by faith that we are saved. By faith, we know Him. By faith, we can understand that He formed the worlds. Were you there when He formed the worlds? No, big problem. If some of us were there, we could have taken pictures and showed everybody how it happened, right? But we weren't there. But by faith, I can know this. I don't exactly know how He did it, but I know this. God formed this world by faith. I can trust that by faith. And so faith allows me to believe even in the past that, you know, I'm I'm right now doing some uh, research and some study on a on a project for uh, for seminary, and the the premise of the book that I'm working with is, let's see what we can prove. And they have all kinds of like the Bible's wrong here, and this fairy tale was made up, and this uh, myth, and this thing. You know, these, this was written so that the people of this time and all, and it's all this you know wisdom out there, and it grinds at me because my faith says. The Bible's true, it's not, you can't go at it like this, you know, you can't go at it like, well, you know, uh, this Bible wasn't written until, you know, 800 uh, BCE because, you know, we know the cultures of this and this and this. It's ridiculous, it's it's just not true. How do I know that? Because I have faith, I, I didn't, I don't have a DeLorean to go back in time and see Moses writing Genesis, but... I believe. You know what I'm saying? So faith allows me to be confident of something that I can't prove. And I have a reason to be confident. Hope talks about my, and it's very important that hope talks about my future confidence. What's coming. What hasn't been realized yet. Tom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, because they're not gifts. They're fruit. They're, they are uh, things that we get by being in a relationship with God. They are things that God gives us faith. We have confidence because we have this hope, the anchor for our soul. And God gives us love as, as a fruit of the Spirit. So they're not gifts, which is why he says, which is why I think he says, so you're earnestly looking for the best gifts. I will show you a more excellent way. I will show you the most excellent path. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I'll show you the best gifts. He says, I'll show you the best way, right? So if you really want the best, I'll show it to you. You know, that's what you say you're after. Make sense? Questions? Thoughts? So that big point that Paul is making in this whole thing is really, really important because everything about this chapter is about how love is the thing that is the biggest deal there is. And faith and hope and love are the things that last when everything else fades away. And what I want to do, I want to just, before I, we start dissecting the chapter and the, and the first if discussion, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, go back to Isaiah chapter 1 because you see the same kind of thing here. And it's very much in this zone uh, that Paul is talking. And so maybe if we talk about it in this chapter, it will help us understand what Paul is saying. Because essentially what Paul is saying is... Um, no matter what you build in this life, whether it looks good or whether, you know, it's a, it's a shack, you know, that looks like it's going to crumble. No matter what you build and no matter how it looks to people that build, all of it is going to be gone. All of it, great things, bad things, all of it's going to be gone. All of it will crumble and fade away. And what will be left, what you will realize when it's all gone, is what mattered. And that registers with us, doesn't it? If if you knew that this was the end of your journey on this earth, or the end of your journey was in a week or whatever, it would adjust your priorities about this week, wouldn't it? How do we do that? How do we know that? Because something inside of us knows there's stuff that matters and stuff that doesn't matter. And if I only have a week, I mean, there's some practical things of like, I don't have to worry about some things that maybe I was worried about because I'm not gonna they're not gonna be my thing to worry about. Some practical stuff, but it's deeper than that. It's not just pragmatic. It's but this is what really defines my life, and this is what I really want to hold on to about my life. And what Paul's saying to us as he looks at this is those things you have the opportunity to hold on to now. You have the opportunity to be alive now. You don't have to wait till, oh, it dawns on you because life's coming to an end or the Lord's returned and you're standing in front of him giving account of yourself. It doesn't have to dawn on you then. You by faith and with hope and through love can see what matters now and live in it now. You have that opportunity, that experience. It's part of what God gives us in salvation when we become children of God. All right, so now Isaiah chapter one, down at verse 29, down to the end of the chapter, I want you to see what, what Isaiah writes here. He's writing to the children of Israel, and he's writing to them because they have rejected God, but they have been going through um, a form of godliness. Uh, Maybe I should back up. Let's go back to um, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. What? You picking that up? Whose idea was it to sacrifice and bulls and rams and goats and burn offerings? Whose idea was that? God's idea. And God is saying to them, enough with it. I'm done with it. I'm sick of it. I've had enough from you. Why? Huh. So I'm doing the, the thing that you said to do, but I'm not doing it. Because God didn't ask me to go through some ritual motions. God did not ask me to do some physical task. God asked me to use a physical task to represent a genuine heart. For me to want to know God. From the depths of my soul to want to know God. And they weren't. And so he says, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Verse 14, new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. And your hands are full of blood. Why are your hands full of blood? From your offerings. They murdered a bunch of people. No, because you've been sacrificing and sacrificing. You are so busy doing all the spiritual work But it's empty because there is no genuineness. There is no passion. There is no Godwardness in my doing it. It is so that I can go do what I want, but I can still look like I'm a good person because I do this ritualistic stuff. Know anybody like that? I'll be a better person if I... Yeah. I mean, that's what we are, isn't it? We struggle with not putting our trust in the work but putting our trust in the one for whom we do the work. We struggle with that. We struggle with the fact that God is enough for me, that he's all that I need. We struggle with that. Because if it was true, life would taste very different. If God were truly enough for you, do you have him? So then you've got enough, right? No, I... And that is where we are challenged in faith and hope and love. We are challenged in these things that matter. So go down to verse 29. It says this, because he says at the end, here's what's going to happen. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will come under and his work a spark. Both will burn together No one with no one to quench the fire. What's God saying there? Something's going to burn up. It's all going to be gone. All that you have done. okay. And he's referring actually to some idolatrous places, the, the sacred oaks and things like the gardens that you've chosen. He's referring to the fact that they worship God, but they also worship these other gods, which is what the heathens did. Heathens who just, they didn't know what was what. They just worshipped everybody just in case one of them was real. They just worshipped The children of Israel who knew the true living God did the same thing. They would worship their God, but just in case, they would worship some of these other gods too. And they what does he say they did when, they, when the sacred oak and the, the gardens? It will be their disgrace, but what did they do when they went to, to those places? What, what feeling did it bring in them? Delight. Delight. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? The things that you have chosen the things that you have deemed desirable, the things that you believe will fill you up with joy and make your life worthwhile and make your day livable, those things, what's going to happen to them? They are going to crumble. They are going to fall. They are going to be turned into nothing because you knew better all along. You knew that, there was, that these things were not the thing but you acted like they were and you let yourself believe it and you let yourself get sucked into it. So I don't know anybody here who goes and delights in sacred oaks and, and tries to do, you know, heathen worship sacrifices or whatever, but are there things that we delight in that take what belongs only to God to take the hope or the faith or the passion that belongs only to God. And we put it elsewhere, believing that we can go to church on Sunday and, and, we'll be good. We got all our bases covered. We can serve this stuff during the week and we can go and worship God on Sunday. And God says, "No, this is this is not genuine faith. You've got to open your heart. You've got to open your eyes and see the reality. If you want to be mine, if you want me to be yours, if you want us to have a life together, this is all in stuff. There's there's no none of this over here and over there and the joy is this and that and the other. The joy of, of my life is my Lord. And my life unfolds because of his grace and his goodness and his plan. Otherwise, why would God say, you know, those sacrifices I told you to do that you keep doing faithfully, I'm sick of them. And I pray that as, as we get together on Sunday morning that our, you know, I don't believe that we disqualify ourselves from worship in the way that if you come with a sincere heart broken for you know, the things that, that you've done and you, you turn your heart to the Lord, God does not make you earn your way back into his good grace. God is full of grace and mercy. Thank God, because we would be hopeless and helpless. But I do believe this. If you come and you have things inside of you that are in rebellion to God and you offer worship to God, it kind of just goes nowhere. If it's just your mouth or if your heart is divided, I think you've got to get back to the faith. (laughs) I think you've got to get back to where your hope really should be. If your hope is in somebody doing something that you wish they would do, if your hope is in that somehow I'll attain this plateau in my career or in my finances or in my figuring out life or in you know, my relationship status or in my parenting, or if somehow if I achieve this goal, then I will be okay. I know this, you'll never be okay. Because there will always be another goal. There will always be another hill. There will always be another thing out there. If you're waiting for somebody to get their head together so that you can live life at peace, there will always be somebody out there you're waiting on, isn't? won't there? My faith is where? My hope is where? My love comes from where? Not any of those places. Just Him. Right? And that's... What Paul's trying to show them is love is the way. Love is the most excellent way. So... Uh, in, the, in the couple of minutes we have left, here's what I want to do on the backside of your study sheet or, or try to do it here on the board. Uh, there is a breakdown of this chapter and all the things in this chapter lead up to this big point. Um, the first couple verses here, uh, verses one to three, are the if discussion. Okay, I just read that to you, the if discussion. And he goes through all of this if, if I this and if I that and if I had this and if I did this and if I if, if, if. And he's going to make a point about love with the if discussion, okay? Uh, Then verses 4 to 7, he's going to define love. I don't believe Paul is giving, uh, this is the ultimate and complete definition of love. I, I don't believe he's trying to do that. I think what he's doing is he's giving us some reality check on what love is. In a world that tries to define love by however you want to, Whatever you want to think love is, think that. Paul says, I'm going to tell you, if you want to be honest about love, look at it like this. And it will get you, it'll it'll narrow you right in to this is what love. And by the way, love does not always make you feel good. <laughs> love does not always uh, bring a smile to your face. Parents, are you with me? Yeah. We know it, but we don't, apply it because we hear such, we hear such other things out there, you know, about what love should be or shouldn't be. And and I can't tell you how many people have sat down across the room from me to talk about how they're struggling to love or how they thought they lost love. Love left and they couldn't help it. They fell in love and then they fell out of love and love was there one day and it got up and left the other next day and nobody saw it go and we don't know where it went and yeah, you know, it's grand mystery what this love is. You know, that's the world in which we live. Why do we do that? Because I, I don't have any guilt or, or shame in it because it wasn't my choice. It, would just, it just happens, you know? Today's discussion, you can't choose who you love, is in direct opposition to the biblical truth of love. You absolutely choose who to love. God chose who to love, and you do too. You choose who you love and you choose who you don't love. The responsibility is entirely yours. You may not um, have warm and fuzzy feelings for everybody. You may not be the most outgoing person in the room. You may be so shy that that being around people is hard for you, uncomfortable for you. Can you still love? Of course you can. Love's not about personality. Love's not about having bubbly conversation. Love is about what God says it's about. It's about caring for someone else the way that God cares for us. That's what it's about. And I can do that regardless of how it feels or how it looks or who I am or what gifts or skills or abilities or personality I have. I can do that. I can choose to do that. And many times we choose not to when we find reasons not to. So he defines love. Then, and I think this is really important too, especially as we talk about the gifts. Verses 8 to 12, he talks about stuff that is passing away and it is the setup to this stuff lasts what lasts what remains faith hope love greatest of these is love these things continue on right these things remain what you've lived out in hope and what you've lived out in faith and these things remain but these other things good things great things wonderful things fade away and in actually in both of these categories in this first one and in this third one the things that he diminishes the things that he says crumbles and falls away are all things that if you and i saw them happening in front of us we would define them as really really good godly things but he's saying they are nothing without love love is the thing that endures not those things pretty good pretty cool stuff All right, so on the back of the sheet there, I put a chart. And I put this in a chart specifically so that we could kind of see how Paul is making this point. In the first three verses of the chapter, he gives us, I think there's five different things, the ifs, right? He gives us like five different things. And then he talks about love, and then he talks about result. Okay, so if, it says, if I speak in the tongue of men or angels, okay, so he goes right to their thing, tongues. If I speak in the tongue of men or angels, so I do something. Now, who gave me the ability to speak in tongues? Holy Spirit did. So if I do that through the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul's saying. If I use that gift through the Holy Spirit, But, don't have love, what's he say? A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, Anybody have a child who is learning to play the drums in your house? I do. I do. do. And we have done as much as we can to limit the amount of clanging gongs and and cymbals that go on in the house. It's a... It's a grating noise. If it's, Especially in this scenario, this is not somebody practicing to play the drums is playing in beat and rhythm. This is mayhem. It is noise. It is irritating. It is grating. It, the whole presumption underlying this is that we know that good music is done well. It's done in time. And when somebody plays the drums, they play them in a way that fits with the music and all that's, that's fitting and good and supportive and all that stuff. But when I... Take this gift that God gave, and I use it without the rest of the music, it's just irritating. It's somebody being puffed up and putting it in your face that they're better than you because God gave them a gift that they didn't earn, but they're using it to say that they're better than you. And so the result is irritating, dissonance, right? So, no, has no value at all nobody wants to hear it nobody enjoys it nobody likes it except maybe the person who's doing it and certainly not god so paul starts there with here's a spiritual gift the gift of tongues now he talks about it as the the tongue of men or angels now I'm, i there's a lot of people who believe a lot of different things so i'm gonna tell you what i think about it you're welcome to think whatever you want about it but i'll tell you what i think about this for hermeneutically for how you study the word of god this is the only time in the Word of God where tongues of angels is mentioned like this, where we would be able to speak in the tongues of angels. Um, there are people who believe that you can speak in a language of angels, and perhaps you can. Every time you see the angels speak in Scripture, they do not speak in a different tongue. They speak in our tongue. You, know, you see Isaiah, they're crying to one another, holy, holy, holy. In Revelation, they're crying to one another, holy, holy, holy. Uh, when Gabriel shows up at Mary's door, he speaks to her in human language. So it is difficult for me, interpretive-wise, to believe that this is a tongue. What he's trying to do is teach us about that you can speak in tongues of angels, especially since it's not the point. The point of what he's saying here is, no matter what kind of tongue you speak in, no matter how spectacular that tongue is, and I think he's speaking in hyperbole, you speak in the tongue of men or even if it's angels doesn't matter how great of a miracle it is if it doesn't have love it's nothing it's nothing anybody wants to listen to and it's a verbal gift did you get that it's the speaking in tongues and so that's the the clanging uh gong and the 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 the, the irritating dissonance out there it's it's verb words coming out of your mouth that sound coming out of your mouth that nobody wants to hear okay so does that make sense I mean, other people believe other things, so be it. But I'm just telling you, that's how I get to where I am on that. I don't believe Paul's trying to teach us about the nature of tongues in that verse, that there are angelic tongues that we should be pursuing or that we're given or whatever. I just think he's using it as a, especially the way it's like, it's subordinate phrase there. Uh, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, prepositional phrases. So there's, there's not really doctrine going out there. It's just kind of an aside. His real point is, if you don't have love, I really am this this uh, unbelievable uh, racket going on, okay? Then he goes, and the next one is, if I have the gift of prophecy, who gives this gift? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. The gift of proclaiming the truth, the, the messenger between God and men. Like the Old Testament prophets, sometimes it was about, you need to correct this. Sometimes it was about, you know, this is what you learned in the past and you should be remembering it. Sometimes it was about things coming in the future. But it was always this representative that spoke, had a message from God to give. And so if I were able to prophesy, if I were able to give you messages from the mouth of God to you, that's a miracle. This is a. If that happened, if somebody was able to get up and give us a prophecy from God and was able to speak to us, and we were able to know that this was from God, which is which is the implication here, that would be impressive. We would probably be in awe of that. That ability to that, that God had picked somebody to speak on His behalf for us, right? If I were able to understand all mysteries, right now mysteries. What's a mystery in the Bible? It's something that God knows, but hasn't explained. And then later on, maybe like the mystery of grace and, and the coming of the gospel, mystery in the Old Testament, not revealed. God knew about it, but then in the New Testament, it's revealed to us, and we get to know about it, the mystery uh, of Christ. So there, the mystery in the, So if I understood all mysteries, things that only God knows that he revealed to you, and you could understand them, pretty amazing. Or have all knowledge. So these are, these are not bad things. These are, in context, things that God has given this person the ability to do. For why? Why did God give this person the ability to do this? To build up the church. And what he says is, if I don't have love, what? That is a devastating phrase. I am nothing. Yes, yeah. So Paul is in some sense pointing the finger at himself saying, if I had this but didn't have love, I am nothing. I am empty. I am useless. I have had no effect. This gift that God has given has been given to me to build something that lasts. Faith, hope, love. And I took it and filtered it through no love and I came up Empty. Just like when Isaiah said, in the end, there'll be a spark and a flame and it'll be burned and there'll be no one to put the fire out. It'll be all gone. Do do we want our Christianity, our lives, our testimony, our witness to be that thing that is nothing left over? We made it through life. We had a nice house. We lived a nice life. We took nice vacations and we did nice things. But at the end, we just made it and they all burned up and it was gone and it was nothing. Or is there something to live for That will last, something that will go on, something that will matter after you and I are gone from this place. And are we living like that? Or is that just something we know is true, but we don't act as true? And so, as we're out of time, but as Paul goes through this, that's what he's doing. As he's saying, let's see what happens. God gives us an amazing gift of tongues. We do this, and the result is gone. God gives these amazing things and we do this and the result is gone. Nothing. So we'll pick it up there next time. We'll keep going. Then we'll get into the definition part of love. Uh, Not next week because next week's our worship night, but the following week we'll get back uh, into talking about this stuff.